0: All right, this is Carbon Spectrum, episode five, take one. testing. One, two. All right. Good morning. Good afternoon. Good evening. This is the Carbon Spectrum. I'm your host, Matt Bauer. You'll be hearing from Rebecca Bauer soon. But before we get into it, just want to give you all a congratulatory pat on the back. Not literally, because I'm not there. You have entered the new year. It is now 2019. So with that in mind, what are your New Year goals? You don't have to tell me right now because I can't hear you. But Think about them because there's no better time to start them now. Maybe they could be things that benefit you as well as your neighbor, your society, your planet. Who knows? It's totally up to you. You don't even need to have a goal. It's 2019, you can do whatever you want, almost. But let's say you do want to start a resolution. Let's say you want to start the year on the right foot a little optimism doesn't hurt anyone right stick around for this episode because uh the guest we have on board he actually has a lot of insight on what makes society tick and what it's actually going to take to help push us into a more sustainable direction with that said who do we have up at bat today who are we getting to learn from whose wisdom
1: shall we consume i am brian burke
2: dr brian burke
1: i'm an environmental anthropologist and an
2: assistant professor at appalachian state university He was able to share with me this vision for a society that could actually function under such changes that we would need. And he also provided some ideas on how to get there. We spoke about everything from alternative economies to democratic participation. So, do you wanna just explain a little bit about your previous research and what it all really means today?
1: Sure, most of my research really focuses on how communities mobilize to achieve environmental goals or economic goals. And I really came to that in large part because I read and studied a lot of good, interesting literature in anthropology and sociology and political science and geography. All this really interesting literature on the problems with capitalism, the problems with our main ways of doing development, the problems with the ways that we govern our societies but much less about real case studies of organizations and communities that were mobilizing to address those problems. And so that's where I wanted to direct my efforts. And then for my own dissertation project, I went to Medellín, Colombia, to study alternative currency systems and barter systems which were basically examples of communities who said look this economy is not working for us the society and the culture that are based around this economy are not working for us so let's figure out an alternative let's just make one where rather than waiting for somebody to make it for us and so these people got together and they said hey what if we make our own currency that's not dependent on formal jobs, but yeah. you know, if you know how to plant seeds and make them grow and create food, that's a skill, that's a service that our community needs. Mm-hmm. What if we gave you this community currency for that and then in exchange you could use it for the skills or the goods that I have, right? And so the currency became really a way of just facilitating exchange within the community of things that people needed in order to really make use of the skills that they had.
2: How did they value that? Was the currency in hours of time or a cost?
1: Yeah, that's a good question. In Medellin, there were actually three entirely separate systems that started independently of one another, and then they spread. And they had different ways of valuing it. Globally, there are some that are valued based on hours, and part of the idea there is we're all human beings. Just because you're a doctor and I'm a farm mm-hmm. worker doesn't mean that an hour of yeah. your time is inherently more valuable than an hour of yeah. mine. And, and the, the counter argument is, wait, but I put in all this time and all this money into becoming a doctor. Yeah. Right? But the counter counter argument is, <laughs> right, you got to enrich yourself. You got to pursue this interest. Mm-hmm. You got to invest in yourself in this really luxurious way. Yeah. That's great you're still a human being and I'm still a human being. Yeah. So there are some that are valued in terms of hours. The ones in Medellin mostly have resisted a standard way of valuing. And the philosophy has been if you and I come to an agreement that we are both happy with, then we've figured out the value.
2: Cool. That's so we can work it out. And one yeah. of the
1: basic principles is we should both leave a trade satisfied. And that's a sign that it worked.
2: That's really cool. Yeah. So I've been super interested in barter systems, and it seems to me, at least, like such a useful way to transfer goods and services within a community.
0: He does make some good points that you can't get everything out of it, though. And if I could, I I may not exactly have too much to offer in a trade just yet. So I don't really know how I would fare in a barter system. Well,
2: I mean, you are able to like pick up groceries for someone or do something like that. You don't have to like give someone something physical in return for something physical, you know?
0: Do you have any experience with it?
2: When I worked at the farmer's market, a lot of people would exchange their goods because they were all makers of sorts, you know? So a farmer would trade some vegetables for some coffee or, you know, the pasta guy would get eggs in return for making another farmer some pasta. And it was, like, a pretty good system and, like, very unofficial and would just happen. But I guess that is technically a barter system of sorts.
0: I see the correlation, for sure. It's pretty cool.
2: Yeah, so what I thought is, like, cooler than these, like, itty-bitty small-scale barter systems that I'm more familiar with is the big barter systems that Brian spoke about, like, in Columbia and in New York. And how successful they were, even with, like, hundreds of people on board.
0: I'm intrigued. Let's hear more. You
2: said it was Colombia with the barter systems, right? Yeah. How big were those communities?
1: These were all in the city of Medellin, which has a few million people. Oh, okay. And wow. the barter systems themselves were usually at a neighborhood scale, but they would attract people's friends from different neighborhoods as well. The main one operating today is in what I guess we would think of as a suburb of the city. And because it's on the edge of the city, it draws small farmers as well as people from the city and so that's one of the things that makes it particularly useful. I think at the high point there were hundreds.
2: That's so exciting.
1: And yeah (laughs) and then at the low point there have been as few as two or three dozen probably. What's interesting though in Medellin is that they've been operating since 1994, in one form or another. And some have collapsed and then some some new ones have formed. The other thing that's interesting there is that they're not limited to these actual markets. So a few dozen businesses and cooperatives and Nonprofit organizations across the city have also started to do their own barter projects. And some of them are only one time a year, and actually government agencies Uh, as well. Really? Yeah, so (laughs) the Department for Sports and Recreation for Kids does an annual barter fair where people make toys, they get donations of toys, and it's a chance to educate kids in other values like sharing and caring for community rather than yeah. just getting what's good for yourself. And so if you were really committed, you could go to probably between 35 and 40 barter events each year. Wow. Right? So almost one a week.
2: That's awesome.
1: Yeah, it's pretty neat.
2: What do you see as some of the major drawbacks to a barter system?
1: What many people see as one of the main drawbacks is that you can't get anything you want the instant you want it. Hmm. From an environmental perspective, and from the perspective of supporting local economies, that's actually a benefit. It's part of the reason that we have such global environmental problems is because we've become accustomed to a sociopathic level of convenience our demand for convenience, our demand for immediacy, our demand to have every desire fulfilled instantaneously is literally destroying society and the environment. And so I actually see that as a strength. Mm -hmm. The fact that it slows us down, and if we're really committed to working within that system, it forces us to ask, first of all, do I really need this thing? And secondly, if I do need it, who in my community is producing it? Who here can I support? Or if nobody's producing it, how do I build that opportunity here yeah. in my place? So I think that's a strength. I think one of the biggest weaknesses is that we are not accustomed to working that way. At least for now, it's counterintuitive. It's contrary to so many other aspects of how our, our lives are oriented. Mm-hmm. right? And so when you are working full time or you're working a couple of jobs it's hard to free up the time to do that searching or to produce things that you could barter or to really be active in the system. And so that makes it challenging.
2: Do you think that a barter system could ever be super successful in the United States on a larger scale?
1: There have been barter and alternative currency systems in the U.S. that have been pretty successful. In Ithaca, New York, they had a local currency called Ithaca Hours,
0: which Hmm. ran
1: for about 20 years it just recently was disbanded and it became so successful that the local credit union was giving loans in Ithaca Hours for small businesses. Really? Small businesses found it useful enough that they were taking loans out in Ithaca Hours and uh, the credit union was even receiving payment partial payment in the local currency and there have been times historically where they've been actually even more widespread. Yeah. We use alternative currencies all the time without knowing that's what we're doing. So frequent flyer miles are effectively a currency. The uses are really restricted. (laughs) There's really only one or two ways that you can earn them, but they're a currency. So not all of them are just, not all of them are liberating.
2: That's an interesting point to note that it seems like bar system is a great currency, great way to do things, but it definitely can be
1: faulty. It can be. I think in the same way that our conventional economy requires governance, barter systems and local economies would require governance. Yeah. And we clearly haven't achieved the right level and the right types of governance in our conventional economy. Mm-hmm. Right. That's Lord Stern, an environmental economist from England, calls climate change the largest market failure in hmm. human history. It's also probably the largest policy failure in human history. Yeah. Right. No, But to finish the question about my research, recently I've been also studying environmental and climate issues in the U.S. as well. So since 2012, I've been working in Western North Carolina to look at how people engage with environmental governance, how what we call lay people, right, non-scientists, non-politicians, how they develop their own environmental knowledge. Often multi-generationally, hearing what my grandmother said and what my mother said, said and what you know, and seeing how the land has changed and how some of that knowledge is really sophisticated. So we're looking at this local environmental knowledge and the types of actions that it generates, in part because there's pretty good reason to believe that most responses to climate change or large-scale environmental change will be informal, community-based, or household-based and really driven by that kind of local knowledge. So understanding what that is, I think, is important for being able to see what those responses might might be and how we might be able to create conversations and collaborations that wouldn't exist otherwise.
2: That's exciting to hear.
1: (laughs) (laughs) It is. It's encouraging.
2: A little bit of hope.
1: (laughs) (laughs) At the same time, there's very little public policy in place to support that kind of action and really disturbingly little consideration by local and state government officials of what we might need in order to prepare for climate change. We've done some interviews with public officials and it's been alarming how little climate change is on the agenda and we've put these people in positions of power in part because we want them to be thinking about our future. and. Either we're not clear that they need to be thinking about the climate aspects of our future, or they just don't know how, perhaps, or they're not interested in it, or they don't have the right incentives to do it. They're overstretched and have demands in other ways and aren't getting the resources for it. But that conversation, it seems, is largely absent from local and state government. Especially local, from what I can tell.
2: Really? thought you were going to say especially state. (laughs) So I wanted to hear from Brian if he had like a vision for the future of the United States. Personally, I find it super hard to, quote, fight the fight without having an actual vision of what could work.
0: Kind of like the Occupy movement back in 2011?
2: Yeah, exactly.
0: I went to it one day just to check it out. It was just a lot of people coming together, which was great. I think there was some good efforts made. But the problem is, like, I think by the time it all dissolved, nothing really got solved. Their whole mission was persecute Wall Street. But I don't think there was an actual focus amongst everyone there.
2: Something with the Occupy movement is that, like, they obviously did make some sort of change because we're talking about it right now. But What do you think
0: that changes?
2: I mean, I think education and awareness is a change. I mean, that helps. But, like, physical, like, milestone markers, I don't really know. But I'm also not on top of it either, so.
0: It's okay. Neither were they back then, so. (laughs) Perhaps that's because they lack vision. Not like Brian. Brian has vision. Let's talk about Brian's vision.
2: Do you have any vision of what you see, maybe the U.S., in X amount of years being more sustainable and how that would play out, and if it's possible to have a United States that is climate friendly and also preserving
1: mostly our way of life? I can see ways for us to move in that direction. All of them require really significant political will. I think... In our current political context, there are probably two elements to building that will. The first is really mobilizing people to express that will, to demand it of leaders. So the majority of Americans believe that climate change is a really significant threat. We've seen no positive action from our politicians, not in the last two years, but really even further back than that. They're not representing the majority of Americans. So I think one aspect is to really build community voice, really build popular voice and demands. I think a second aspect of building political will is eroding the power that gets in the way of people's power, changing campaign financing. I think those Mm -hmm. are key aspects as well. One way of thinking about those two things in common, sustainability and quality of life, is to compare how a country ranks in terms of the Human Development Index, which is a UN indicator of national well-being. So Human Development Index versus ecological footprint. The sweet spot is where you have high human development, but low ecological footprint. And so we can look at which countries are in that box. and. There are almost none. In 2015, there were eight. Okay. I don't recall all of them, but they included Ecuador, Colombia, Algeria, I think Ghana was on the list, and Cuba was the only one that achieved very high human development while staying below a certain ecological footprint. And so what that suggests, I think, is how we might need to adjust our lifestyle expectations in order to stay within that equitable global ecological footprint. It's doable. And all of those countries have done it in a post-colonial context with few resources to start with, with weak governing institutions, because for so long they had been colonial underlings, essentially, of first world exploiters, Um, and in some cases in the context of real violence. And clearly the results haven't been universal. Right? Not everybody in those countries is enjoying the high level of human development that they've achieved. So I don't know that they're exactly models to follow, but they do provide insights. And we certainly have far more resources, both economic, but also political and technological and cultural going into that challenge than they did when they became independent. So I think it's clearly possible. It will take a massive change. I think it's really important to shift our thinking from seeing environmentalism as a matter of personal action to thinking about collective action and collective infrastructure, right? It's really hard to achieve ecological purity to be, you know, there are these books like Zero Impact Man or whatever, right? It's really hard to have zero impact when you're only doing it yourself. But when you are really systematically building a community of people, a society, an economy Mm -hmm. that supports that, it becomes much easier and it becomes much more impactful. And so that, I think, is the way we need to strategize around these twin goals of ecological sustainability but also well-being. Yeah, I think there's also fear of trying out new ambitious things. And so whatever the marketing, however the marketing is spun, it's got to get people past that fear, right? It's got to make it yeah. really exciting, not overwhelming, not partisan, not fear-inducing, not yeah. guilt-based. It's got to be something that really engages people in something that they feel is going to make their place better.
2: Mm-hmm. That's a hefty task. Just because everyone has so many different values and ideals and... Getting an entire community on board is overwhelming.
1: (laughs) It can be overwhelming. I mean, the good thing is, it's not just your task. You are a part of it, I am a part of it, but there are lots of us doing it. Mm -hmm. And the better we are, the longer we stick with it, the more of us there will be. Yeah. So the work gets shared. I've got a friend who I think is really good at getting people involved and getting diverse people involved. His secret is listening and engaging them in really genuine conversations. We rarely take the time to do that, but people really like to be listened to. Like I said at the beginning, people do have real commitments to caring for their world, their natural world, their local community, their neighbors. And so to a large degree, I think less than marketing, maybe the strategy is sitting down and listening actually just making a decision to get over one of the biggest hurdles, which is time, and saying, you know what, I'm going to make the time to sit with these people and talk and listen and discuss what matters for us and think about how we can move towards what matters for us. Yeah. Largely hearing about how development had failed over and over and over again, and politics and economics were very unjust. Yeah. <laughs> inequitable, unsustainable failures over and over and over again. And sustainability is almost always co-opted and becomes some trivial form of greenwashing. Yep. And so I realized my, my task here was to keep students <laughs> excited, to keep students optimistic, to convey a sense of hope. I get my biggest hope. From community action, from the fact that over and over again communities do mobilize, they do make change. So, what it takes is joining those efforts and joining them up with each other into yeah. a larger effort.
0: Do you think that our country can do this realistically? I mean, can we move towards a more climate friendly society?
2: Personally, I would say yes. Like, I definitely think that it's possible. And I think that Brian brought up some really good points about politics and community voice. I have a very, very hard time staying on top of all the elections and what's going on in D.C. And even though it's so important to be active in that way, I still struggle to be present. Um, There are very good organizations that I try and follow to give voting information for people who are running Most of these organizations are based on outdoor recreation and public lands, especially out in the West, because that's been a huge issue. But they do a good job because I think the people that are usually in support for public lands are the people who are also very climate aware and know that we need to do something. But, Matt, do you think that we can become a more climate friendly society?
0: I'm optimistic. It's gonna be an uphill battle, but it's possible. It's possible, sure. Let's move on.
2: Do you see any trends in regards to innovation or hope?
1: When it comes to innovation, I'm actually not very interested. I think probably 95 or 99% of what needs to be done doesn't require innovation. It requires implementing things that we already know, implementing technologies that we already know, implementing strategies of governance that we already know, implementing economic opportunities that we already know about. So innovation, I shouldn't say I don't pay attention to it, (laughs) but I don't see that as the problem. To me, the real problem is motivation and organization. I do see some trends, I suppose, in those regards. I think the environmental movement in general really has shifted from a bold grassroots movement to a largely individualized lifestyle movement. Hmm. And so I see students come in really with that in mind. When I ask students, what do you think you can do or what do you want to do or what's your vision for how you will address environmental problems today? A lot of what I hear are responses like, I'm going to use less plastic or I'm going to stop using straws or I'm going to reduce my waste or I want to buy a farm and live on a homestead and right mm-hmm. this is a symptom of how environmentalists have failed I think to capture people's imagination to really inspire bold collective action that can transform the world, not just transform individual people's lives. Mm -hmm. But what I've also seen is that students are really eager and receptive to hear about bolder collective actions. That they're not resistant to it at all, they just haven't heard about it. There's very little consciousness of past social movements. There's very little consciousness of past successes at any scale larger than themselves, right? Mm -hmm. And so it's hard for them to believe in goals that are larger than themselves. I think that's one of the big problems that we face. And one of the big opportunities is to really demonstrate that we can have much larger impacts. And how do we know we can? Well, we have, we have in the past, right? So we can do it again. I think we're getting to a point where people are tired of seeing half measures where people are tired of seeing greenwashing or kind of token inclusion of justice or environmental measures. And there are two possible responses to that. One is that everybody will become jaded and nobody will believe every anything and we'll just all become cynical. Yep. <laughs> the other is that people will hang on to those goals but say, wait a minute, let's really do it yeah let's get out of the greenwashing let's get out of the tokenism and let's really go for it i hope we're moving (laughs) in that direction
0: yeah hmm actually that makes a lot of sense some friends and acquaintances and colleagues have told me we just are waiting for the right person to come along and come up with a new invention inventions are great they're awesome but i kind of agree with what brian's saying here there's no more need for innovation so much as there is community And taking initiative right now on building a community is really, like, the next big step. I think at this point we have all the tools we need at our disposal, so it's time to actually get together and start getting to know our neighbors. On that note, let's take a quick music break, and when we come back we're going to learn about greenwashing, which has been happening all around us, believe it or not. I didn't know that, though. I didn't even know what greenwashing was till then. Also, we're going to get into the IPCC's report on climate change, and Brian's going to give us a more in depth analysis of what it means without getting too lost in the jargon. And despite all the gloom that we've built it up to be, I think there's some light at the end of the tunnel. Stick with us. Welcome back. This is Matt. This is Becca. And we're doing a podcast. It's
1: called The Carbon Spectrum. Let's get into it.
2: Can you explain greenwashing for those who don't know?
1: Greenwashing is, imagine a dirty factory. And instead of really significantly cleaning up the factory, you create the appearance of cleaning it up. And maybe it has some small benefit, but you put a nice splashy smokestack on there and you paint a green logo. It works best if it's got like a leaf, maybe a tree (laughs) growing, and hands. People really like hands, right? So it has the sense of like, yeah, it's from the people and it's growing and it's green. So the focus becomes having the appearance Of being sustainable rather than genuinely being sustainable. I think it largely grows out of corporate environmental responsibility initiatives and the people's realization that you can win consumers and you can charge higher prices if you really do a good job of marketing yourself as green.
2: Mm -hmm. Is there anything that you would suggest to our listeners to start implementing in their lives in order to move our country forward?
1: Well, On the one hand, who am I to suggest things to them, right? (laughs) I would encourage them to really figure out what's most important and most meaningful to them and start working on that. On the other hand, I can throw out some starting points.
2: Yeah, that sounds good.
1: I think on the national level, really demonstrating that You want change. That you want change in the process of politics. For example, overturning Citizens United, changing campaign finance reform, that kind of stuff. But also change in the substance of politics. It actually matters to you if we are putting a million new dollars into expanding highways versus a million new dollars into public transportation. Or it really matters to you if we are putting billions of dollars into subsidizing large scale agriculture to feed animals versus billions of new dollars into small-scale agriculture to feed people. Just manifesting these concerns, I think, is one really important starting point. And then I think at the local level, there's probably a lot more room for action. Actions that generate that satisfying sense of, mm-hmm. of, of success. Yeah. So paying attention to your local energy commission or environment commission or whatever committees and boards your your town or your county has Mm -hmm. and I think engaging with them I think that's a really promising avenue
2: is there anything in your personal life that you do to live more green
1: the biggest thing I do probably is being vegetarian Mm -hmm. which I've been for about 20 years and vegan for eight of those and I think that's really the easiest single action Right. People think of that as being really challenging.
2: Really challenging. Really, yeah, but absolutely. <laughs> it's
1: at least in my experience all it amounts to is no longer buying meat. Mhm. Right? I mean, it's that simple. It's like <laughs> that you just avoid one part of the grocery store. Yes. And perhaps you need to learn how to make other things, right? But yeah. there's no shortage of resources for that. Mhm. My job encourages me to travel to conferences and for research and things like that. And mm-hmm. I've really tried to scale back some of that airplane travel. That's been a sacrifice, but I have no doubts that it's been a good one. And the other thing I think is that apathy is also a lifestyle. It's a lifestyle choice in the same way that eating meat or not eating meat is a lifestyle choice. So I think one small thing that probably is far more important than we realize is making tiny commitments to being less apathetic. And that can be as simple as going to one town planning meeting a month, or to a year, right? It can involve going to a couple of informational events by local environmental organizations or local racial or economic justice organizations. Mm -hmm. Just showing up at one of those says to the candidates oh there's a constituency for this there's a constituency for economic justice for racial justice for gender justice for environmental justice for climate responses and i think starting to build a lifestyle that's based on political involvement and action is really meaningful the bottom line is as we deliberate about the lifestyle changes that we would like to make we think about them not only in terms of sacrifices, right? The things we can give up, Mm -hmm. but also the things that we can do proactively. Yeah. We still run the risk of reducing environmentalism to a series of individual actions. Yeah. Even if we spin it as enhancements in life Mm -hmm. rather than sacrifices. And so I think we still need to be careful of that. Yeah. We still need to recognize that Those kinds of lifestyle changes might work well as an on-ramp, but they've got to be an on-ramp to a more powerful, significant highway. Yeah, And that highway is really where we need to be looking. One thing that really hit home for me early in my environmentalist journey, I guess, was in my Environmental Studies 101 class, learning about how much waste there is in our food system. Mm. And what really struck me actually was fishing. I don't know what the stats are today but at that point, learning that for every pound of fish that was delivered to the market there were 13 pounds that were killed and thrown back in the ocean. Really? And I just, the sense of waste just struck me as so unconscionable. So intolerable. It was an affront to my sense that the world should not be wasteful. More than like I like animals or I care about green spaces or, Mm -hmm. you know, it was just this sense of like, wow, we have to be able to do better than that. Yep. Ultimately, I think what we need is a social movement, a massive social movement. Yeah. Last week, the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change, which is a subset of the UN that's dedicated to climate change analysis and negotiations, issued a report that said things are far worse than we thought. The really catastrophic changes that we thought wouldn't happen until we hit two degrees of warming are actually gonna happen when we hit one and a half degrees of warming. And we really only have about 10 years, 10 to 12 years to act massively to avoid one and a half degrees of warming. And so what that means is to generate that level of change means creating a mass movement that demands it of our leaders. Some of the, I think, meaningful statistics about this are that, for example, the IPCC estimates that the funds necessary to implement this kind of large-scale change amount to 2.5% of global GDP per year. Really? So 2.5% of the total value of all the economic goods and services produced every year would have to go to addressing climate change. That sounds huge. And in a way, it is huge. But to put it in perspective, we currently spend about 2.2% of our global GDP on military spending. So clearly, we have those resources. We are putting those resources into all sorts of different things. We're just not choosing to put them into averting really significant climate damage. There's a, a really good article in The Nation by Chris Hayes in which he compares what's necessary for us to get off of fossil fuels to historical precedents. And he says, look, is this kind of massive change possible? And so he runs some numbers and he says, actually, yes, there is a time in American history when we achieved a radical and very quick change in our energy source. And doing so at that time required wealthy people to give up trillions of dollars worth of wealth, which is exactly what we have to do now, right? In order to get off of coal and get off of oil and get off of gas, we need those companies to be willing to sacrifice trillions of dollars worth of value. So that time historically was in the 1860s when slavery was abolished, emancipating slaves essentially amounted to a total change in the source of agricultural energy. And it was a government mandated elimination of trillions of dollars worth of value. That required a war in which a million people died. And so he ends the article saying, hopefully we don't need that this time too. Yeah, right? I feel but like that's so
2: counterintuitive.
1: It's not unprecedented. <laughs> We've made really significant changes before. We are already dedicating 2.5% of our global GDP to all sorts of things. We're just not dedicating it to efforts to prevent millions of deaths due to climate change in the next several years. So one of the questions is, can we imagine a climate army? Can we imagine a people's climate army? Yeah. Can we imagine that kind of investment? because ultimately that's what it will take. And so if you ask me what actions do we need to take to get there,
2: mm-hmm.
1: we need mobilization on every scale. We need people quickly making changes in their own lives, but we also need people quickly making changes in their local politics, and their state politics, and national politics, and linking up with international movements for climate justice.
0: Mm-hmm.
1: If we're not really clear about the scale of change, then we'll just keep tinkering. And that's what the IPCC told us last week. They said, look, we've run out of time for tinkering.
2: Yeah, we've tinkered enough. We
1: need to get real. And we've got about 10 years to do it. And 10 years is enough time. Yeah. But we need to get down to work. It's kind of, you know, you as a recent student, me as a professor, we have to write papers all the time, right? Mm-hmm. And we know what it's like. You know for months <laughs> that you have this paper to write. Yes. And yet you wait until the last three days, mm-hmm. right? But you get the paper written. Yeah. And maybe I even give you an A, right? <laughs> That's where we are right We're
2: now. lucky. <laughs> right? We have
1: procrastinated. Yeah. But we've got time. Yeah. We
0: just need to get down to it. Yeah. That is a very interesting comparison.
2: Yeah, I, I know. When he said it, I was like totally astonished. But it, it really does make a lot of sense, I mean, I went ahead and read the article after we finished speaking and would totally recommend it. But also the comparisons that Chris Hayes makes really put things into perspective for me. Um, I think it's kind of crazy to think that we could almost get rid of all of the military in the world and put all that money into climate efforts and that could almost just be the solution.
0: I I think it's... It's dangerous and naive to think we could just replace the military funding with that.
2: Yes. (laughs) Not saying that I would think that's the best option, but just having that in my mind is a really, is just super
0: interesting. (laughs) I'm optimistic. On that note, we're gonna take one more quick break, but when we come back, Becca and Brian will dive into capitalism. Oof, that sounds like fun, right? And the issues that Brian sees with it. Don't worry. He's not for communism. Just keep in mind that Becca and I are trying to bring you as many perspectives on things as we can to provide you with a full picture on the climate issue. None of these economic systems were created with climate change in mind at all. So just keep an open mind while we talk these things out. Well, rather, when I listen to them talk it out. Stay tuned. I hope...
2: Is there any last comments or anything that you really think people need to know and should know before we wrap up?
1: I mean, do you want me to talk about capitalism? It's
2: always a fun topic.
1: (laughs) (laughs) So people often get scared when they hear that capitalism is a central part of the climate problem because they think, well, what else is there? Does that mean we have to be communist? Well, that didn't work, right? Does that mean that we have to give up all of these good things that capitalism has produced for us? And what I think is really important for us to realize is that there are many other ways of organizing our economy besides capitalism, including communism, but also far beyond communism. So we can have businesses that look like businesses that generate profits, but that aren't capitalist, And so what does that look like? It means that instead of decisions being made by a small group of people, decisions in that business are made by the whole community, by all of the workers, perhaps by the town as a whole. And instead of profits just flowing to a small number of people, those profits might be distributed among that whole group of workers or that whole community. And that puts us in a position where we can make different kinds of decisions about those profits, where we say it's not worth it to generate all these negative environmental impacts. We're going to reduce some of them. We're going to internalize those externalities. And it might mean we sell a little less. But we workers are willing to sacrifice those profits because what we gain is a river that you can fish in. Mm -hmm. Or we would like to sacrifice some of those profits in order to pay ourselves a little bit more. Or we're willing to sacrifice some of those profits in order to support quality public education. So moving beyond capitalism doesn't mean moving beyond businesses. It doesn't mean getting rid of profit. It doesn't mean getting rid of innovations. What it means is changing how decisions get made and changing how those profits are used mm-hmm. and who gets to decide how they're gonna be used. Yeah, And we see this in a small scale to some degree with some corporate social responsibility initiatives, some of the more ambitious ones. We see it especially with B Corps, yeah. benefit corporations, right? where it's a whole new legal form for corporations where they are actually building social and ecological goals into the business model. To kind of clarify the importance of this, if you're a publicly traded corporation, right, if you are traded on the stock market, it is illegal for the CEO of that company to make any decision that would reduce shareholder profits. So the CEO can only take environmentally and socially friendly actions if they have good reason to believe that they'll increase profits. Hmm. That's why greenwashing happens. Yeah. If you are a B corporation, your legal charter says you're out of that loophole. Your legal charter says, no, social and environmental gains are central. And so I don't have that same set of handcuffs on me. We're willing to to undo those democratic decisions to protect the environment and protect people and protect community because they get in the way of corporate growth. And so, when I say that really addressing climate change and really addressing environmental justice requires getting rid of capitalism, what I mean is it requires that we quickly change the operating system for our global economy and change the operating system for our national and local economies so that democratic decision-making has priority, right? It doesn't take a backseat to corporate need. Yeah. So that human rights and environmental necessities have priority over profit, right? We're not willing to sacrifice them in the name of free trade. Yeah. Businesses are places where resources accumulate and somebody makes decisions about them. Mm-hmm. And so what I'm suggesting is a broader group of people should make those decisions yeah. and they should make them for a broader range of reasons.
2: Yeah.
1: Government is another place where resources accumulate and people make decisions about them. Mm-hmm. And I would say the same there.
2: Yeah, More
1: involvement in economic democracy and political democracy. Yeah. And a real infusion of environmental and social values in economic democracy and in political democracy. Mm-hmm. That's, I think, where the real change lies and the the types of lifestyle changes that we talked about vegetarianism and transportation and energy systems and your own involvement in activism those i think are starting places
2: yeah
1: right but i think where they really become significant is when they become a platform or a a foundation for pursuing those bigger projects of economic democracy and political democracy.
2: Yeah. Thanks, everyone, for listening. And thank you, Brian, so much for taking the time to sit down with me and talk about so many different things. We really, really appreciate all of you. Please check us out on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter and our website, which is carbonspectrumpodcast.com. If you have any ideas for topics to explore, or you want to just say hi, or you think that you have some really good sustainability tips, we really want to hear from you, so please reach out to us.
0: Till then, this is Matt Bauer.
2: And this is Becca Bauer.
0: You'll have a lovely day. And just remember... (laughs)